Hi, it's Kathy. This week, we're sharing an episode from an exciting new podcast made by our friends at A-Pink. A-Pink builds transgender, non-binary, and queer power for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the Bay Area. You might remember when I spoke with their director, Sammy, on one of our previous episodes. So A-Pink's new podcast is called Dragon Fruit. And it's all about the history of trans and queer Asian and Pacific Islander organizing, love and relationships, and reclaiming space for healing. This episode is called Juicy Fruit, the ripe time to talk about relationships. And this has such fun and varied conversations about relationships, not all of them romantic ones. And get ready, because there's going to be a totally adorable moment that I don't want to spoil, but it has to do with making one of the biggest relationship decisions. We're linking to Dragon Fruit's website in the show notes. So please check them out wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about A-Pink's work at apienc.org. Okay, here's Juicy Fruit, the ripe time to talk about relationships. Hello, and welcome to the Dragon Fruit Podcast the podcast where we reflect on the history of trans and queer Asian and Pacific Islander organizing, get into some juicy and sweet conversations about love, and reclaim space for our own stories. This episode is produced by members of A-Pink, a grassroots organization that builds trans and queer Asian and Pacific Islander power to amplify our voices and increase the visibility of our communities. We want to take a moment to acknowledge that we are writing, producing, and recording this podcast on stolen, unceded Ohlone land. We want to ask our non-Indigenous listeners to contribute to the Shumi land tax, which goes towards the Sigoriate Land Trust's work of rematriation of Ohlone people's land. And with that, my name is Yun. my pronouns are she and they, and I'm one of APINC's community organizers. And my name is Shreya, my pronouns are they, them, and I am a volunteer for APINC. We're excited to be your narrators for this episode on love. And let me just say, a Cutie API podcast is really not complete without talking about love. Today, you'll be hearing our voices as your narrators as well as the voices of the individuals invited to share their stories on this podcast. In our conversations about love and relationships, we talk to a lot of people of different genders, ages, and perspectives. And we ask them, how have you come to understand love and relationships? How has that changed over the years? We're not only going to hear about romantic love, We'll explore other types of intimacy and love as well. We'll dig into the pressures we face as trans and queer and as API people, and the expansiveness and messiness of finding connection and intimacy in this life. Before we get started, I want to give a content warning that we will be mentioning issues of sex, touch, and conflict throughout this episode. We will also provide a gentle reminder before each section, so you may skip certain parts if you'd like. Like such a common thing in like QTPOD communities, be like, what's your understanding of love? And then people talk about it for like until 3 (laughs) a.m. And like they just met each other. 
Vita is right. There's something so special about people's juicy and spicy love and relationship stories. So often, love, relationships, and pleasure are pushed to the side, saved for moments when we're not too busy with work, navigating the challenges in our lives, or organizing. But as Adrienne Marie Brown writes, love, joy, and feeling good is not frivolous, it is freedom. As many of us are finding, pleasure and love are the point. Since this is a podcast about making space for love and relationships, juicy stories, joy, and pleasure, what is more appropriate than starting off talking about queering romance? Grace and Connie have been together for 11 years, and their love is intertwined with the shared passion of healing, self-sovereignty, and uplifting our community. And most recently, they have been advocates of financial literacy. We'll be hearing from the pair's first Dragon Fruit interview in 2015, where Grace tried to gauge how Connie felt about marriage. To drag her around to like different sites in the city. I'm such a big tourist, even though we've lived here for like over three years, but there's so many different places to explore. So, you know, my perfect day would be to get up early, we go and <laughs> sightsee, and then after that, go for a hike, and then go to a fancy dinner, and then come home and watch a, a movie on the couch. Like, all those things would be be great. And Connie's now at a point in her life where I think that <laughs> she's she's happy to just be at home. Yeah. And just roll around in bed and relax with you. It's fun. It's my perfect day. Did you want to talk about the marriage equality stuff? Because that was kind of a big deal. Did you ever think that you'd get married? Oh. Um, no. <laughs> and, well, because growing up, not really having that model of, like, you know, same-sex marriage or whatever, I could never see myself in that hetero heteronormative model. So I never considered it to be a possibility for me because I'm like never going to be wearing a dress and that just seems weird to like spend your life with some male and like it just never made any sense to me so so it was never part of my you know world but now that it's available or like there's so many people coming together committing their lives together and things like that I'm still thinking about it trying to figure out how that fits in my life but now it is a possibility so it's like it's kind of good more than good for so many different reasons. What about you? <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, I I grew up with parents that loved each other so much. I mean, they're like inseparable and they've been married for over 30 years now. And so um, I've, I've seen their relationship change over time. I've seen them really happy together. I've seen them when they've, uh, you know, been close to divorce, but yet they were able to work through it. So, um, and I've seen them make it through together through different struggles, like financially with their kids, like myself and my, my younger brother, he has a disability. And, um, so I've seen them support each other throughout the relationship. So for me, it was always like, I, I expected to have that in my life at some point, um, with somebody. So I always figured that I'd eventually get married to somebody. It's just whenever the right person came along. Some bunny. Some bunny. <laughs> we have two bunnies. <laughs> cool. Yeah. 
So you don't think that um, so now so now that it is available, you don't think that um, well I well you said that at some point you could actually see why people get married now even though well I think the whole like settling down thing and I mean the, in our current structure of like society it makes like sense in various ways but the whole the romantic aspect of it um yeah i think as i'm getting older i feel like yeah why not plan a future with one person or and kind of have that thing i'm not very articulate about it because i'm still like processing the whole thing <laughs> so um but yeah commitment is is could be a possibility for a long time or something mm-hmm. <laughs> that's good to know well i was wondering if you would make it like a real real possibility and what the <laughs> really marry me what are you serious are you you're really serious you're doing this right now on record oh my god really Yes, Connie, I love you very much. Oh my god. Would you please one day be my wife? (laughs) Um. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, someone asking someone to get married and it being recorded for a podcast that's pretty wild. I know, I cannot imagine how brave you have to be to do something like that. And it's recorded for forever. That's kind of special. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty incredible. But I think that even though marriage is seen as the ultimate goal or achievement of what cis-heteronormative relationships are supposed to look like, Connie really challenges this expectation and asks Grace the question, how can we build and queer marriage so it's not just centered around this narrow view of romance, but shaped instead around possibilities and an expansive way of committing to each other. And now, six years later, Grace and Connie are actually married. Last year, we returned to Grace and asked her what she learned during those six years. I didn't really think about marriage necessarily, the way that mainstream culture thinks that women should think about marriage. I I didn't imagine myself in a white dress and um, calling that the, the love when it happens. Um, and I never envisioned myself necessarily with a male either, even though that was something that was kind of expected um, or assumed from my, my parents. But I didn't have that sort of fantasy when I think of marriage and love. But I just assumed that I would come find someone that I'd be willing to commit myself to um, the way that my parents were able to. And I saw that it didn't just come magically like that. It's it, uh, as a result of a lot of work and commitment and dedication. So I just felt like with with Connie, it was someone because of how much effort she puts into healing herself and working on herself. I figure that if she loved someone, that she would put in that same amount of work into the relationship. And I, um, so I just I just saw my my partner in her in, in that way. Um, and she, although she didn't, she never imagined marriage in that way because she's also more of a butch presenting lesbian so the idea of marriage and and what that looked like was never something she could relate to so when I proposed 
she had never really thought about marriage until I proposed. <laughs> so she had to come to terms with that too. Um, <laughs> of like it being actually an option for her as someone that is a butch presenting lesbian that didn't grow up in like a heteronormative uh, nuclear family structure traditionally. So um, we came from opposite spectrums in that and have like helped each other to understand commitment and marriage in our own our own unique way. So it's not like my parents wear her family's way either. It's just our own. How we navigate our relationships and even our queerness, it's so shaped by our identities, by our unique heritage and histories. So often how we understand and express our love is a reflection of who we are, not just as queer and trans people, but also as Asians and Pacific Islanders. It's a reflection of what we learned or unlearned from our parents and guardians. Generational histories of war, trauma, immigration can contribute to the tension we feel in our connections with others. Sometimes relationships with our loved ones require so much self-work and so much work together. And sometimes we have to let go of toxic relationships. But finding and building healthy connections, healthy love, it's so worth it. When we add on queerness to the idea of romance and long-term commitment, we are invited and challenged to create our own definitions of relationships outside of typical cis-heteronormative expectations. And yes, romance isn't a fairy tale. Grace and Connie had to forge their own way of being married. For Grace and Connie, this meant figuring out what they needed and resisting against gendered social norms that told them otherwise. But what if that light bulb moment comes to you later in life, after you've already completed all of those life milestones that people are supposed to complete? For our next speaker, after straight marriage, after babies, and after adulthood came a queer awakening. So please get ready for some heart eyes. Ellen Tenoye is a third generation Japanese American elder and an ordained pastor who has been happily married to the love of her life since 2017. Ellen tells us about how she discovered her identity later in life. I'd like to provide a content warning that the following clip contains references to sex and touch. And actually sexual kind of romantic, that kind of appeal is, oh, it makes you so it's like a passionate, like, m not a moment, but a passionate way of being. Um, because when, okay, so my wife will disagree with me, but I always, I always liked women and I always wanted to have a best friend, even though I was married for many, many years. And so when she kissed me, she will say that she, I kissed her. But when she kissed me, I never kissed a girl before. It's like, oh. <gasps> Oh my God, I saw stars. I saw, oh my God, I just like was on fire. It's like, oh, whoa. And, and so that changed. We were best friends. But then when she kissed me, it's like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> and so when, when we uh, were able to be physically intimate, Oh my god, I never experienced that before. And you know, I had four boys. Hello. So, you know, I mean, 
I've been there, done that. But um, being able to experience、um, a sexual love with another woman, oh, oh, oh my goodness. I mean, I saw stars, I tell you. And it's just the most amazing thing when you love a person and you come together physically. Whoa, that's just like, oh, like being in heaven or, I don't know, like transported to a different level of who you are. It's just, oh, I can't, exp- I, I can't express it in words. So juicy. Although Ellen checked all the boxes to the conventional life milestones we're taught to follow, she shows us there is no timeline for the path of self discovery. Being a bit older in your life journey doesn't invalidate the time it took to get there. Everyone's journey is their own, and there's no one right way for you to discover your own queerness. That is so true, Shreya. And so often, the folks we call elders. Are desexualized when it comes to love. But hearing Ellen's frankly spicy story and listening to her real vulnerability is so powerful. The new and messy emotions and sparks allowed her to be open to a queer and a more passionate way of being, a different level of who she is. It expanded the possibilities of romance into something so much bigger for Ellen. Shreya, as so many of our storytellers have shared, a lot of us don't actually fit neatly into common portrayals of love. And we've had to figure out what love means for us through experimenting, exploring, and reflecting. Yeah, truly. For our storytellers, love also stands for something beyond just romance it's our relationship to our friends, family, community, and even to ourselves. It's about practicing care for each other. Yes, that is so true. And that's why I'm really excited that next up, we are turning to an intergenerational conversation with Justine Xu. Justine is a longtime A Pink member who always wants to know what you're dreaming up for yourself and your world. Here, they share their perspective as an aromantic person, the importance of prioritizing different forms of love, and how scarcity can show up in romance. What's interesting is, you know, I think the theme of what I've been listening to from the three of you is that we're destabilizing this notion of like a centralized, monogamous, romantic relationship, right? And it's so interesting for me because I identify as aromantic. And I think I've had conversations about that with you all in different varying capacities. But, you know, for me, Part of what that means is, you know, romantic attraction and relationships doesn't really make sense to me, doesn't feel central to who I am or who I, or how I relate to other people. And so when I, you know, I've often used like this analogy when I think about love as,、um, as like relationships are like plants, right? And I'm, I'm in a room and I have like a circle of plants around me. And each of those plant pots represents a relationship I have with someone else or with an idea or with something. And the reason why I love this analogy so much is because 
there's a feeling of like interdependence there where let's say I'm feeding the plant sunlight and the other person is feeding the plant water, right? And those things are not the same thing and they happen in different quantities and in different flavors, but they both work together to keep the plant alive, right? And in my worlds, you know, my plants are people, right? So many of the people I've met through A-Pink, people I've met through organizing, through deep vulnerability, through deep community work. It's also family, right? Whether it's chosen family or uh, biological communities of origin. Um, It's also the earth, right? And feeling connected to the earth um, and that sense of reciprocity that needs to be built there. Um, And also love with myself, um, love with my dreams. uh, And even, even I think love with people who totally disagree with me um, or see the world differently from me, because I think it's like a recognition that we have to still live on this planet together. You know, I can't deny that you're existing and you can't deny that I exist, right? So we have our own different type of plant too. And I think the reason why this analogy has been so central for me is because, um, you know, it's not necessarily like there's a hierarchy, right? Uh, And it's not like I'm creating my life around other people in like a romantic relationship. It feels more like collectivist to me, right? A little more diffuse in terms of in terms of power. And I think what has been really important for me to learn through all those types of relationships, because they're not definite, they're definitely not equal relationships, right? Like the relationship I have with my family of origin is so different from the relationship I have with like you all on this call, who I feel very deeply towards. Um, But so I think what love has really taught me is that you know, it's it's also about a lot of a lot of grief and suffering and pain as much as it is about the joy, right? And the moments of like beautiful transformation and connection. Um, and finding the fluidity among all of those things. Uh, and so, you know, I I find myself wanting to talk about being aromantic more in our like queer and trans API community. Um, And I have found a few folks who definitely resonate with a lot of the same things, right? Of how can we uh, really think about love more expansively and think about how our relationships with each other are like these testing grounds or these like playgrounds or like creative grounds to imagine the type of world that we want to be in, right? And I think that resonates a lot with A-Pink's way of organizing too, where everything is, you know, really relationship-based, like even starting the Dragon Fruit Network and Dragon Fruit Project that came from a place of relationships, right? And so if if relationships are this creative space where we're going to not go by the norm and we're going to do what makes our hearts feel most free, then, you know, why are we submitting ourselves to these, you know, structures around 
monogamous romantic relationships uh, that don't always serve us that I think, you know, have often made us feel really scarce. And I say that as someone who has been in relationships that were read as romantic or seen as romantic before I'd really uh, come into my identity more fully. And yeah, noticing that for a lot of queer and trans people, we, we've often felt a lot of like lack in our lives of feeling like seen or understood, um, you know, especially if our families of origin did not love us fully, right? And so when we, at least for me, like when you, what I've seen is that when folks find someone who they really resonate with and connect with, there's this like feeling of, oh my God, this person is the person I need to make sure I have with me for all time because they make me feel safe and they make me feel like I'm okay. And that is so important. And at the same time, it's like, you know, there's not a lot of resilience in that if you have to depend on one person um, to remember that you are like, worthy of existing and being your full self, right? And so how can we uh, build that strength and skill with each other. And I, you know, when I think about my closest relationships in my life, the people I love so much, I feel, I feel so free. Like we can do anything. Like I, you know, no matter what obstacle or struggle or challenge comes my way, like I have full belief that these people will show up for me. Like they are literally the loves of my life because I have struggled with them. I have been in conflict with them. We have worked through things and supported each other's dreams and uh, we've disagreed with each other. We've messed up. We've had boundaries with each other and believing that through all that, we're still gonna be there for each other because we do keep each other alive in the most like nurturing and like free way. Wow, yes. Just as Justine was saying, queer love is the creative practice of remaking and reshaping how we want to be in connection with each other. It's not just about dating. It's also about building the world we want to live in, a world where we confront isolation with care. That is so true, Shreya. And that journey can be imaginative, it can be exhilarating, and it can be scary at times. The models for the love that we're trying to build aren't always easy to find. But when those models do exist, they give us an opportunity to break through oppressive and normative ideals. Next up, I'm so honored to introduce Steve and Vince, who you may have heard in episode one. Steve and Vince are LGBTQ elderly activists who have worked in the HIV, AIDS, and LGBTQ movements since the 80s. Steve, a fifth-generation Chinese-American, and Vince, a gay Chamorro man, got together for a conversation and shared about their relationship to their parents. Probably in my 40s, when I when I was about to make a job change, you know, it felt like a big identity um, change for me. I had anxiety attacks and things like that. And um, what I think helped me get through that period was like to really just start to embrace like the idea of love as like, not just in that um, agape way, but like 
you know, that love is such a precious kind of term when, you know, I started to learn, like, it's just about like trying to acknowledge my human connection to people, you know, just the practice of starting to actually tell people I love them or like saying goodbye in a way that was like acknowledging the love that we have was a big deal for me to like really start to look at the different types of love that I have. Wow. You know, for me, as somebody in my 20s, I used to think, you know, if I love somebody, I had to sleep with them first. (laughs) Yeah, that was going to go anywhere. (laughs) I have to change, you know. Um, I think, Steve, we may have talked about this, but one of the concepts that I embraced early on in my living with HIV and AIDS was that love heals. Mm -hmm. And often I'm asked what brought me into this work, and I say love. And I'm asking what keeps you in this work. And I'll say love because, you know, it's, it is these different kinds of loves. You know, I mean, even Steve, you and I, you know, we worked, we knew each other so long, but I think it's only the last couple of years where we started to say, you know, I love you or something like that. And it's not corny. It's just, this is a testimony to our relationship. And, you know, also for me, there's family. I fought for gay marriage in the early 90s, but I can't honestly say that I totally believed in it because I was like the only marriage I really had to compare to with my parents. And I thought, oh my God, who wants that? But anyway, that has changed. People know, you know, I've been taking care of my parents for the last couple of years and to watch them fall in love under the nursing home and to know that they're in quarantine right now and that they love each other and that they're together. So it's, for me, it's been expanding that concept of love, just understanding that that's, I was doing an interview with someone last week and I I don't know what it was. It's like, I realized like, I'm not a vengeful person. <laughs> like I used to think I was, you know, like I always used to fantasize about getting revenge on someone who hurt me and stuff like that. I'm like, you know, that just never works out for me. And I realized that's because that's not you, you know? And so I think that that for me is like, comes along with that love heals piece is like understanding that, you know, I am more loving than not. And that's, you know, I apply that much more to my, I'm much more willing to work on relationships now than I used to be. Cause before it was like, I'm dying, get out of my way. But now it's like, you know what, over time is how we build this. And I will stand by you. You know, maybe I won't always stand by you, but if I do don't, and then, you know, that's just the way it was meant to be. So yeah. Anyway, I'll stop talking about that because who knows, I might start weeping because <laughs> I can feel that or But yeah, and I, you know, I have to thank my parents for that because ultimately they've taught me, you know, they're going to be, my dad's going to be 85, six in a week. My mom will be 86 in a month. And it's like, what they've taught me is like really how love can look different and how it might not be that romantic love that we, you know, that we were like spoon fed growing up in movies and stuff. It's like, it doesn't turn out that way. And yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Well, Vince, uh, you and I have been in conversation about our parents for the last couple of years. And I just want to say how special it's been to be able to know, especially as gay men, that, you know, I, I never thought that I'd be taking care of my parents. Uh, I remember my, my parents said, you know, it's, it's strange that we may need to be taking care of you or you know, losing you before that didn't happen. But now here we are, two gay men with HIV who have like lived long enough to really be thinking about our parents. And I'm just really grateful that I have you as someone who's able to support me, you know, as my dad died. And 
and to think about how you're supporting your parents. Thanks, Steve. I'm a little choked up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, I remember when I told my mom that my dad had been moved to quarantine because he tested positive. Her response to me was like, well, I wanted a break. And I'm like, oh my God. And then two days later, I was talking to her and I said, mom, dad misses you. And she said, you know what? I miss him too. Can you believe it? Four days before this, I wanted him far away. And now it's like, I miss him. And he said, Vince, I must love your dad. Oh my God. Thank God for that revelation. But you know, that's just the way it is. And it's like, sometimes you have to get to those moments to see and understand everything. It's like, I don't honestly understand their relationship, but just seeing that and knowing that, knowing that they're together really gives me comfort. It also, you know, for younger people, especially queer trans folks, if you've had challenging relationships with your family members and your parents, um, it's a lot, you know, it's hard. But once you have those conversations that are difficult, it just it means you have a lifetime to spend with each other. And as COVID may have taught some people, it's like sometimes you just don't know what's going to happen. And one day they're here, the next day they're not. I mean, we learned that with HIV. But I think with HIV, we knew how to protect ourselves. With COVID, it's been a little less clear. We learn to love from those who love us. And who loves us could be anyone who has cared for us. As queer, trans, and non-binary folks, we have had to redefine our understandings of love, family, and parental structures. Yes, we even have family outside blood lineage. We adopt, do surrogacy, and find alternate ways to create families, chosen or otherwise. Satyajit Pandey, who is originally from Mumbai, India, and now lives in San Francisco, was the publisher of Tricone magazine for 10 years. Next, he will be sharing his journey of being a sperm donor for his longtime friend, Poonam, and the unique relationship they created from that experience. Yeah, so um, one thing that has changed is, you know, um, not have a very, like a, inflexible, let me put that word, inflexible view of a relationship. It can be different things. And talking of different spaces, I have a very good friend, Poonam, Poonam Kapoor, um, and she approached me to be a sperm donor. And this was like three, four years ago. I was almost 50 then. And I said, I'm going to be 50. I can't take care of a kid. You know, but she said, no, I, you know, you can't be like a good uncle or something like that. And she was partnered or she was going to be partnered that time. And so I ended up having a kid when I was 50. Through these unique parenting relationships, we see the values of radical abundance. To have and nourish a child with your friend outside of romantic relationships really breaks down all the barriers we thought were involved in parenting. Yes, so incredible. And creative parenting journeys can also lead you to discover unconditional self-love through an unexpected journey, as our next storyteller Giselle found out when she became a godmother. Giselle identifies as a queer cisgender female. She's a proud San Franciscan of Indonesian-Japanese ancestry, and her most profound relationships are with her goddaughter and her adopted dogs. I am a 
godmother, I basically co-parented my goddaughter. And so for me, oh gosh, the unfolding or the peeling back of myself to really understand unconditional love. When you welcome a child into your life and you make the commitment that, you know, come hell or high water, baby girl, I'm going to be there for you. You know, I am going to be there for you, which, yeah, you say that to lovers, but do you really, I mean, you know, are, you know, so, so, but for me, it's like, nope, you know, you know, from at least, at least K through 12, I'll be there for you. you know? so, <laughs> um, so that was one, one turning point, And it really, uh, you know, Canyon can attest, it really changed my life. I went from being the person who, uh, you know, commitment wasn't part of my vocabulary to being, you know, the, the career person and, you know, going up the ladder and la, 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 to make sure that I had gainful employment so that I can honor my obligation to this lovely little child that was growing, right? And then about, um, you know, 15 years later or so, actually like 20 years later, I had a health incident and it really caused me to think about unconditional love in a different way. Like who is there for you without question, without judgment, and who is there for you who is happy to see you no matter what, whether you have hair, no hair, whether you, you know, have an app, you know, just whatever, just, just as you are, who is there for you? And so that really caused me to relook at my, you know, friendship bubble, if you will. And it kind it kind of changed, you know, I kind of said, Hey, you know, who, who can I count on? Cause it's a special, it's a special kind of love when somebody can just listen and not rush to solve and not try to change you and not try to package you, you know what I mean? And when I was able to sort out and really feel for those individuals, and I, I say individuals because one of my main support groups was my dog at the time, you know, and that helped me realize, hey, if you want to live a really rich, fulfilling life, it doesn't have to revolve for me around romantic love or having that partner. Because, you know, you know we, I do have friends that have had 30, 40 year relationships and I applaud them and I, I love seeing them together. So they're really beautiful, but that's not, that's not me. That's not my bag. You know, going through those two events, you know, making a commitment, uh, really caring for someone and, and watching them grow and then having a health incident and really having to assess who, who's my core team, you know, who are the people that were really there. It really, uh, it helped me evolve, I guess is the word. <laughs> If I can say just briefly that Giselle was the most loving, devoted parent you could ever imagine. <laughs> One time we were at these friends' house, and I think the daughter was, I don't know, eight or something. And I, you know, I said to Giselle and Shirley at the time, I said, wow, it's really a sacrifice, this parenting and Giselle said Canyon we use the word investment <laughs> Giselle reminds us that too often we are sold the idea that romantic love validates you as a queer person but caring for yourself as much as another person has its own sweet rewards from, you know, the innermost part of my being, I never bought that 
methodology of that there was only one person for you and you know you have to find that person and then you're going to be mated for life right so but when I was younger and coming out and sowing my oats I felt pressure I truly felt pressure that there was no way that I could be queer unless I was actively dating somebody or pursuing someone so you know it's like I had to prove I had to what what is it observable behavior I had to really be out there showing showing everybody my romance, right? And and that tended to uh, lend itself to, at the time, people coupling, which, you know, it's great. Uh, but as I've gotten older, I've kind of realized that, um, you know, romantic love is, is a very strong force. But now that I'm several decades you know, into my life journey, I, I'm, you know, it's nice to have, but I really don't seek it. You know, it's not essential to my identity. Now I feel that I've gotten to the place well, where, you know, dang, I really love myself. I like being, you know, spending time with myself, enjoying my own company. And then when I go and hang out with people, you know, it's all good because I'm in a good place, you know, and guess what? Now I can be queer and not coupled. So, you know, back then, back in the, you know, mid 70s, it was, you know, nobody trusted that you were really queer or lesbian unless you were dating somebody, because how do they know, right? Uh, so I kind of fell into that. But now I'm, I'm, I feel really secure in who I am as a person, as a human being. Uh, I, I really don't look at love and think of romantic love. I think of familial love. I think of love that I feel for my good friends. Um, I think of, you know, love in general for like the community. And I think of uh, love to actually my number one squeeze is my little chihuahua. So, you know, <laughs> that's, that's how I, that's how I think of love. It's more companionish, companionship now. But I did enjoy that wonderful thrust and energy you got when I, well, I had when I was younger. I mean, you know, that's, not, you know, not to, not to, um, that works for some people, that romantic love and all the uh, the commitment, the building, the partnering that comes with it. That's beautiful. But uh, I'm in a good place right now, and it, it's not about romantic love for me. Just as Giselle figured out that self-love is important, Hana Karayama has also discovered all of the joy that sprouts when you start to focus on showing affection to yourself. Hana is a stage manager, librarian in training, and passionate introvert living on Ohlone land here in Oakland, California. So just how does showing yourself love allow you to care for those around you better? Here's Hana sharing some lessons they've learned over the past year. You know, I've, I've had some incredible love and dating relationships, and I've had some very hard love and dating relationships, and I've had some that were both hard and incredible. I think what's, what's changed and evolved for me slowly over the last few years and then sort of really clicked into place for me in the last year is, is just like I really like myself and I really love myself, and that was not always the case. In so many moments these days, I'm able to look at a situation or a moment and be like, 
I'm really proud of the way that I moved through that moment or, you know, oh man, I wish I'd done that a little bit differently, but like, good job, Hannah. Like you really did the best you could with what you had at that moment. And what feels really juicy and beautiful for me right now is that I'm taking all of the energy that I spent longing for a capital R relationship or like chasing unavailable people. And I'm, I'm really focusing it in on like, how do I want to move through the world? And how, how do I want to handle different situations as they come up? Uh, You know, I had, you know, situations in my workplace or with my housemates or with my family. And I feel like I'm, I'm able to be so much more thoughtful and so much more loving and careful, I think, in this moment, because I'm, I'm like really building my relationship with myself. And I think that also makes space for loving relationships of all kinds in my life right now. Like I don't, I don't currently have a, a romantic partner, but my, my best friend and I are each other's partners in every way except for sex um we they are one of my housemates and we uh we cook together we we text each other throughout the days when we're at work um we check in on each other um we are so we are so we are so much of each other's support systems i'm really proud of of building that relationship in a way that I wouldn't necessarily have thought to do before when I thought that like capital R relationships or romantic love were the only things or the only ways to do that. Well, Hannah's journey to self-love is just so liberating. How many of us have been asked why we don't have a partner yet? How many have been excluded from conversations just because we're not in a romantic relationship? The happy endings we see in stories around us are almost always related to romantic love. Boo. Yeah, boo. Hada shares more about their own experience of how they were conditioned to think about love growing up. I grew up like really buying into this thing that we're fed that true love will save your life that true love will save you and um you know true to my nerdy librarian roots i i grew up and kind of came to an understanding of my queerness through reading queer young adult novels um and at the time i was reading them um the cast of characters in pretty much every queer ya novel was like skinny white girls and then some skinny white boys. It, the genre has has evolved so much since then. But at the time that I was reading these books, I was like, oh, I just have to meet the perfect girl for me. And then all my problems will be solved and it will be us against the world and the world will be mean to us, but we will be strong together and we will fix each other's problems. I didn't even realize that that was like the, the the belief system that I had so deeply internalized. And what about non-romantic relationships? When we put romantic love on a pedestal, it gets harder to explore ourselves and our platonic loves. Next, we'll be hearing from Paige, 
Paige Chung is a poet and writer from Los Angeles who rolls everywhere. Paige delves deeper as she reflects on her early 20s and how she's been affected by compulsory monogamy. You know, honestly, with this pandemic thing, and I'm in my early 20s, I really just wish I went to more parties and I went on more dates, way more sexual adventures. Um, and my, and not like I'm not young anymore, but it's going to be a long time before we can do lots of like touchy things with strangers. And I'm just like, wow, I really could have a little bit more the last few years. And I live at home with my parents now. <laughs> but um, yeah, I have been thinking about like, what is it? What does it mean to have like sexual freedom and to explore sexually and frequently and just meet lots of people? And yeah, I have been thinking about stuff like that. Um, but it's hard. I think there's something really uh, like with monogamy, there's things that um, how do you call it? Reward you, right? Like if you're in a couple, if you're in a partnership, there is like society will reward you with like the way that you look in your pictures and and also the way that you live in a home together is and you can buy a home together easily and um, there's all these different rewards that make monogamy so um, tempting <laughs> but I've, I've just been thinking about all the things that I want to do when it's safe to touch strangers again yeah Paige is so right there's a reward system attached to monogamy the way our society has been shaped by capitalism, it really makes it so that monogamy is encouraged. Being a couple is often seen as the most stable form of relationship. Some couples can get tax breaks, are more likely to afford rent with dual incomes, and are shielded from those prying questions about life direction, life choices, and character that single people are so often questioned for. Next up, we'll hear from Surabi. Surabi is a former A-Pink Summer organizer and a graduate student in English, Language, and Literature at the University of Michigan. She will delve deeper into how these expectations play out for her. When I think about this question, I think a lot about how different people define being queer in different ways. And how when I was growing up, I knew zero queer people of color and zero people for whom queerness was a source of community. It was every queer person I know, it was primarily about who you loved as a romantic partner. Um, and those were the relationships that define whether you were queer. And I feel like I'm still trying to fully unlearn that, but being part of a larger queer community that was based on other things, based on togetherness, based on movement work has made me rethink the kinds of relationships that constitute a queer network and that has made me feel more comfortable with my life and myself. As Serbi shared, in queer communities, romance is often a form of validation for being queer. It wasn't until later that Serbi found models of queerness where it didn't matter who she was involved with, but rather who she was in community with. Serbi's experiences parallel another community member's, Joe Xu. Joe is an assistant professor of rhetoric and writing at the University of Texas at Austin. They are also a core faculty member in Asian American Studies and an affiliate of the LGBTQ Studies program. Let's hear what Joe has to say. 
so much of my life was steeped in that narrative that your like single monogamous dyadic romantic partner was supposed to be love, right? That that was the definition of love. It was either that or, or familial love in the traditional nuclear family isolated unit sort of way. And to be a queer Asian American in that context, in what was a conservative family, um, it felt like I had no access to this thing that we called love. A couple decades later, reflecting back, I am tremendously fortunate to have had the really powerful world building love of wonderful friends or kin really. Um, and, and now I think of some of the most loving and powerful relationships in my life as ones that are not defined by, you know, bloodlines or necessarily romantic ties, but just people who've come together with tremendous care for one another. I don't know if that's the last five years specifically, but that's definitely been a gradual shift in, in my adulthood. Um, I grew up in a sort of stereotypically Asian American household in that we never said the words I love you. And I, I really adore that I, I have friend groups that say that all of the time. It means a lot to me that we are that expressive in our in our care and active in it for one another. Joe echoes what so many others have shared so far. Sometimes the models of love that we inherit, they just don't match up with the love that we want to practice. And in our pursuit of that new kind of love, we try so many things. Hell yeah, we do. We redefine ways of being together outside of what society expects. Yes, we prioritize relationships that are based on care and on our own agency. And we embrace ourselves and each other in all our messiness. But what is love without conflict? The sustainability of a relationship is so often determined by how we navigate conflict with each other. Conflict can be messy, and for so many people, definitely including me, it brings up a lot of hard emotions. Same. More often than not, the examples of conflict we see in our families, friends, and in mainstream media don't equip us with the tools to have generative communication with each other. This leads us to believe that conflict is a point of fracture in our relationships, rather than an opportunity to strengthen it. Hey Yuan, guess who we're talking to next? Who? You! Ah! <laughs> Yuan will be sharing her reflections on how conflict shapes her understanding of building loving relationships next. There's so many ways, but one really clear change that I felt is, I remember that when I interviewed like three years ago to be a summer organizer, the people who talked to me, I, I think it was you and a, and a friend of ours, um, asked like, how do you deal with conflict? in your life. Like if conflict shows up between everybody, how do you deal with it? And I was super caught off guard. I remember sitting in front of y'all, like feeling real nervous. I was like laughing, but also like really uncomfortable. And I was like, gosh, because I just, I think I really avoid it. And as I sat there, I was like, when was the last time I had a meaningful conflict? And I couldn't think of one. And I was like, just felt so exposed in that interview. <laughs> For, for myself to see. Um, but 
an unexpected way that my relationship with love and other people has changed through A-Pink and through just having queer and trans community has been around conflict that actually like conflict is not a sign of an unhealthy relationship or one that has to go necessarily but actually that like conflict is a sign that like honesty is happening and honesty is essential to a relationship and i feel like that's something that i did not expect to be like learning or practicing through this work um but i even remember like when i joined as a staff person like going to core meetings and being surprised by the level of honesty and accountability that members and staff folks asked of each other of like hey like um that that didn't, that didn't get done like what happened you know holding that question with compassion and also celebrating when things when folks like did practice accountability in like really open and vulnerable ways yeah i have just noticed the ways that over the past year like having relationships with queer and trans api folks that feel solid to me um i've also had moments where like i've been able to say hey you know that thing you did kind of hurt me or just didn't feel great like can i share with you a bit more about that um and i've been able to offer that to other people and like apologize proactively even when things are like the end of the world conflict so i feel like that has been a really big change for me around um love just practicing um not like avoiding discomfort for the sake of a relationship but actually seeing the honesty as such a non-negotiable thing that um yeah like i'm trying to practice it and i know i see people around me doing that too yeah so i think that's been a big learning for me all of these are such important learnings un Conflict is challenging and it should be celebrated more. Not only is conflict necessary and inevitable, it can be used to deepen our relationships with each other. Our relationships are not weak because of the presence of conflict. In fact, it's through conflict that we get to show up as our full selves and create a space of honesty. This allows us to move through those feelings of discomfort together and hold each other as sacred. Yes, so true, Shreya, and thank you. For our very last conversation in this episode, we spoke with Vanessa Ko, who gives us an insight on how their perspective of relationships has changed over the years. Vanessa Ko, they them, is an organizer and baller moving for growth, wholeness, joy, ease, and connection with self, others, and the land and water. I think my relationships with people now I sort of have a confidence around trusting when something feels wrong and be able to go to the you know first like examining and sitting with it right sitting with my own discomfort and what's coming up um but also going back to the person and saying like hey this isn't sitting well with me I the I trust the relationship we have and I kind of want to talk this through a little bit, you know, or um like knowing that relationships are not sort of flat. I think like also seeing people new all the time. You know, like with my best friends who I feel like we just know each other through and through and like there's so much sort of connection beyond what we even say to each other. 
but also challenging myself to see them and like be open to them changing and being different and welcoming that and um, not assuming that they responded one way to one thing at some point that they'll respond that same way. And I think it gives me and the people that I'm in relationship with, like a lot of freedom to be together. Yeah. Like trusting the gift that I am and trusting the gift that they are. And yeah. And like moving toward those places where there's like joy and that like help me to feel my own dignity. That it's not just about like being known or being seen, but like practicing seeing and like if I don't show up authentically in my relationship with someone, then I don't actually give them the opportunity to see me. And like if I don't actually name hurt or confusion or difficult moments, then we don't have a relationship like the one that I want. And if I genuinely want the world to be in deep connection, you know, interdependence and all of that, then like I have to open myself up to that, you know even if it's messy and hard, which is probably the theme of this conversation is like, oh, that shit is messy. And look, we're still here and we choose each other. Yay, progress. Um, summary of our call. Um, so, so yeah, thank, I appreciate the question. I appreciate where it's taking me. Throughout this episode, we explored the spectrum of relationships trans and queer API people live into every day. While it differs from person to person, one thing is constant. Trans and queer API love is abundant. It is irresistible, and it is as expansive as our beings. As we close, we want to leave you with some questions to think about. How do you situate yourself within the stories people have shared? What does love mean to you? What kind of love and what kind of relationships feel authentic to you? As you think about love in all of its forms, go express that love to someone close to you today. I'll start. Thank you, Yuan, for being the most tender-hearted beep and for sharing so many goofy moments with me. Ah, Shreya, thank you for being you and my friend for years now. You bring so much warmth and care to all you do. And it's a joy and an honor to narrate this podcast with you. Thank you for listening to the Dragon Fruit Podcast, and special thanks to the storytellers who shared their stories and histories. This episode was made possible by our writers and editors Zaha Chima, Rai Dang, Ralph Leonio Atanasio, Isabella Rustin, Dorothy Tong, Ankur Patel, M. Lin, Shilpa Rao, Kyla Chung, and Paige Chung. Special thanks to Aping staff members Sammy Blaza-Wills, Yuan Wong, Jasmine Hu, and StoryCorps. Our opening theme music was produced by Sax Religious. You can also find our podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and www.apink.org. Thanks for listening to this episode on love and relationships, and stay tuned for our next episode on healing and accountability. Okay, bye. <laughs>